Our speaker today is Anne Boyd-Rue, author and editor of six books about 19th century American women writers, including Constance Fenimore Wilson, Portrait of a Lady Novelist, which was chosen as one of the 10 best books of the year by the Chicago Tribune and reviewed on the cover of the New York Times Book Review. Professor Rue earned her doctorate in American Studies at Purdue University, and she is currently a professor of English at the University of New Orleans. She's a member of the Women's and Gender Studies faculty and teaches courses in American literature. Professor Rue is a two-time National Endowment Humanities Fellow. Her teaching and writing excuse me, in her teaching and writing, Professor Rue is passionate about the, re the recovery of 19th, 19th century American women writers who wrote fascinating and sometimes provocative and often daring works that have been unavailable and unread for generations. So thanks to Professor Rue for bringing some of these writers to our attention. This afternoon, Professor Rue will discuss her book, Meg, Joe, Beth, Amy, The Story of Little Women and Why It Still Matters, which celebrates its 150th anniversary of Little Women. Please join me in welcoming Professor Anne Boyd-Rue to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you, Carol, for that lovely introduction. I just want to make sure, first of all, that I'm speaking loud enough. Can people hear me okay? Great. Okay. Um, so as Carol explained, I'm, you know, primarily my research, I've been working on recovering uh, women writers who've been forgotten. Well, Little Women hasn't exactly been forgotten, but it is a book that I think has been undervalued and underestimated. Um, and that's kind of what I want to talk about today, some of the reasons why I think we need to look at it again um, and, you know, from a new perspective. Um, so I'm going to talk about why Little Women Still Matters. I want to point out that I did not choose that font because that kind of makes it look like it we're you know, going to have a spooky story here about <laughs> why Little Women Still Matters. I hope it's not spooky. Um, but apparently when I, when I sent the file over uh, to Elsa, the font changed for some reason. So I just wanted to point that out. <laughs> uh, when Little Women first appeared, so it... I'm going to start with why Little Women mattered so much when it first appeared, right? Why it was such a shock to readers and was a major success from the very beginning. I mean, it was just flying off the shelves. I mean, people hadn't seen many uh, successes like this in literature. Uncle Tom's Cabin would compare from the 1850s, but this was, this was a major publishing phenomenon. And, and really, one of the main reasons I think we should uh, realize that when Little Women Still Matters is that it completely revolutionized literature for young people in this country, and really around the world. Uh, when it first appeared, readers and reviewers were astonished by how new and original it was. There had been nothing like it before at least not for girls, okay? So there have been a few entertaining books for boys that have been published in recent years, but the vast majority of literature for children, which was a growing segment of the literary marketplace, was so stilted and pious that it failed to capture the attention of young readers. And she was asked to write this book by a publisher. Thomas Niles of Roberts Brothers, a Boston publishing firm, uh, wrote to her and asked if she'd write a book for girls. Her response was not very positive at first. It took him many months to convince her to write it, because um, she was a tomboy, like Joe. 
right? She didn't really like girls very well. She didn't play with girls. She played with boys. Eventually, she decided to write about her sisters and herself, and obviously, that was a recipe for success. Um, but the books that kids were used to at the time, uh, as one reviewer wrote, consist of puling, doomy good copybook morality calculated to turn the stomach of any sensible child. <laughs> <clears throat> These so-called Sunday school books were written with one goal in mind, to convince children of God's justice. Okay, so characters were very stereotypical and flat. They were either good or bad, fell into two categories. Um, no moral growth at all. And the predictable outcome was reward for good behavior and punishment for bad behavior, sometimes very severe punishments. I mean, we're talking falling ill, getting paralyzed in an accident, even being killed. I mean, these were pretty harsh stories. And they were told by wise adult narrators talking down to children, warning them to be obedient to their elders if they wanted to grow up virtuous and, frankly, in one piece. Um, <laughs> To get a sense of how little women must have seemed to the children and adults who picked it up in 1868, I think it's interesting to compare it to some of the other books that were popular at the time, other stories about girls um, with which Little Women was compared. And the first one I want to talk about, where's my little, is The Daisy Chain, uh, published in 1856 by the British author Charlotte Young. The bookish heroine of this novel is sometimes compared to Joe or seen as a precursor to Joe, but this book is so different in so many ways. First of all, there are 11 children in the family. I mean, it's impossible to keep them all apart. And the daughter, Ethel, you know, she's somewhat vivacious and interesting, but not nearly as compelling as Joe. So her brother is uh, getting a classical education, as boys did at the time, and she's trying to keep up with him, never once complaining about the fact that girls don't get to go to school. I can't imagine Joe not complaining about that, um, which she does, actually, in Little Women to Lori. Um, the little girl, Ethel, her sisters tease her mercilessly about wearing glasses. I mean, she's practically blind without them. Joe would never have put up with that. And, um, and her daily Bible reading and her class-conscious mother have convinced her that, quote, fame is coarse and vulgar, unquote. Of course, Joe didn't think that at all. She wanted to be famous. She had ambitions. And nobody told her they were improper or unchristian or anything like that. So the, even though we look back today and maybe think that Little Women is full of moralizing, for, full of lessons for little girls, they pale in comparison to the severity of lessons that kids were encountering in books at the time. Um, the, also, the other thing about the daisy chain is that it's underscored by regular references to scripture and the religious ceremonies of the Anglican church, which form the foundation of the family's life. Whereas in Little Women, there are few references to religion. The girls are playing Pilgrim's Progress. Um, they get some books from their mother on Christmas, which appear to be New Testaments. But, you know, there's not much discussion of religion at all. In fact, the book was criticized for that uh, by religious press reviewers when it first came out. It was seen as, a, as, a, as an irreligious book. Most people didn't care. But the, that segment of the market was very concerned. The other book I want to compare Little Women to, just to give you a sense of how fresh and new it was compared to the other books then available, was a book by A.D.T. Whitney called Faith, um, Faith Gartney's Girlhood. And I'm just going to read, um, I'm going to read this uh, first sentence, okay, see if you can follow me here. East or west, it matters not where, the story may doubtless indicate something of latitude and longitude as it proceeds. 
In the city of Mishamak lived Henderson Gartney Esquire, one of those American gentlemen of whom, if she were ever canonized, Martha of Bethany must be the patron saint. If again feminine, okay, I've lost you already, right? I don't need to keep going on. What? I mean, apparently readers in the 19th century could make some sense of this. But, you know, readers of later generations are going to throw this across the room, right? This was a hugely popular book. Um, when Little Women came out five years later, it was often compared to this. This book was popular not only in America, but in England. So let's compare that to the first page of Little Women. Before I show you that, though, I was going to show you what the cover looked like. It's a plain book. Um, it came in three colors. Red, green, or brown. Here's some red and green examples. The green ones, those are um, books that I saw at the Library of Congress when I was doing my research in the special collections there. These go for about $25,000 on eBay. Um, but Little Women was also, you'll notice the, the green um, books, there's a little bit difference in the one on the top. It says part second on the spine. So Little Women, I think it's important to remember, was published in two parts. The first part was published September 30th, 1868. And then uh, kids wanted more. They wanted to know what happened to the March sisters. Because the first half just covers the, the first year, right? That year that, um, that year during the Civil War, Christmas to Christmas. And the girls wanted to know, you know, what's going to happen to the March sisters? Who do they marry? Alcott was a little miffed that that's all they cared about. She said, as, as if that were the only end and aim of a woman's life. Um, and she, but she wrote a second volume very quickly, and it came out in April of 1869. The two were published together for the first time in 1880, and so we've always known them as one book. Although any any volume that you pick up it clearly shows you, you know, there's a break in the middle, part second, part one, part two. Um, in England, because there was no international copyright law, it was. It was published over there by Samson and Lowe legitimately, and then all the other publishers started publishing it because it was so popular in England. And they, um, you know, these pirated copies, that second volume was called all kinds of different things. And the title that stuck was Good Wives. So we have volume one is Little Women, volume two is Good Wives. You walk into any store in England today, you walk into Waterstones, you will see Little Women and Good Wives. Yeah, shocking. It's amazing. I had no idea when I started working on this that the, that the books are packaged so differently in other parts of the English-speaking world. Canada, Ireland, Australia, it's two books. And many girls there actually only read the first book. And uh, a woman from Canada t told me, why would I have wanted to pick up a book called Good Wives? Right? She just wanted to read Little Women. So a very different reading experience. But let's look at the first, uh, first page and keep in mind what you saw in um, in A.D.T. Whitney's book. Oh, and here's actually the title page of Little Women, which shows the illustration um, by May Alcott, the youngest of the Alcott daughters. Um, there's some, you know, little, there's a, this picture's been criticized and other pictures that she made for, the, for this volume have been criticized a bit. Um, she had to work on her anatomical perspective a little bit. But um, there's a kind of naive childlike simplicity, I think, to these um, illustrations that makes them actually among my favorites of all the illustrations. Um, okay, let's look at the opening here. Christmas won't be Christmas without any presents, grumbled Joe lying on the rug. 
It's so dreadful to be poor, sighed Mag, looking down at her old dress. I don't think it's fair for some girls to have plenty of pretty things and other girls nothing at all, added little Amy with an injured sniff. We've got father and mother and each other anyhow, said Beth, contentedly from her corner. I mean, it's night and day, right? It's night and day. I mean, any kid could pick this up and read it, first of all. And not only that, but you're immediately drawn in. Not because anything, you know, earth-shattering is happening, although not getting presents on Christmas is kind of a big deal. But uh, you're drawn into the voices of these four very individual girls who sound like people in real life. And this is something that Alcott was incredibly good at, writing dialogue, making the dialogue sound real, just straight out of the voices of the children around her. Um, so the first part of Little Women was greeted with nearly unanimous praise, and everybody was reading this, I want to point out, not just little girls. It was read by adults, read by um, grandparents, parents. Um, you know, there are quotes, really interesting quotes about all the men at the office are reading the book. I mean, it was... It was a huge sensation. It wasn't considered just a children's book. It was reviewed in, in magazines like The Nation and other mainstream periodicals. Children's literature wasn't necessarily, or books for children, I should say, weren't necessarily considered a completely separate part of the marketplace as they are today. Um, okay, so it was published in the UK, as I mentioned. <coughs> uh, there are over... Since uh, the late 1860s, there have been over 100 unique illustrated editions of Little Women, and this is just a couple of them. Um, I, there's no way I could make enough slides, right, to show them all, but there, um, there have been many more editions, of course, that have borrowed the illustrations from earlier editions, but there are at least 100 different artists out there who've illustrated the book. Um, there are today, in libraries around the world, 320 editions of the book, at least when I was doing my research, maybe it's gone up. Um, these include adaptations of the book that borrow the title Little Women. And based on my estimates, it's impossible to know for sure because the book has been out of copyright since the 1920s, but it's quite possible that 10 million copies of the book have been sold worldwide. Um, yeah, so this has obviously been a popular book. It's never been out of print. It's also been translated into over 50 languages. Um, it's been translated into all kinds of languages, any language you could imagine, Russian, Dutch, Urdu, Arabic, and these covers here represent some of the languages in which the book has been most popular. So in the Spanish-speaking world, we're talking not just Spain, but all over Central and South America, Mujercitas, um, and then we have the French, La Quatre Fille de Dr. Marsh. So um, actually, I don't know why it says March. I thought it was always Marsh in French for some reason, because that's easier for them to say. But you'll notice that uh, Mr. March becomes a doctor in France in a Catholic country. It's kind of interesting because, you know, he's not given any sort of denominational affiliation. What is he, some kind of Unitarian or Transcendentalist or something, right, which they'd be very uncomfortable with. Um, I won't try to say the Japanese title but it's been very, very popular in Japan. It translates to roughly the story of young grass, which is a sort of uh, metaphor for coming of age, sort of a shorthand for coming of age. And that's really interesting because the, you notice that the title is not gendered. And actually, the director of Orchard House um, out in Concord, the Alcott home, Jan Turnquest, has told me um, 
that they get a lot of visitors from Japan. I mean, the Empress of Japan has come over even, right? I mean, it's a huge book over there. But it's not just women coming from Japan. It's men as well. Many young men read the book. And it might have something to do with the non the title that's not as gendered. And then there's the Piccolo Done, the um, Italian version. <clears throat> and these countries are commemorating the anniversary of Little Women right now as well. I've been interviewed um, so far by papers in Argentina and Milan um, and, you know, in Australia and Ireland and Spain. And so there's, you know, there's very much quite a bit of interest. This is, Little Women is a worldwide phenomenon. It's not just American. And this is something I hadn't realized at all before I started doing this research. There have also been five major films of the novel. The first two films were silent, and they unfortunately have been lost. But we have three major films in the 20th century by Hollywood Studios. The 1933 film starring Katherine Hepburn, which was black and white, um, you know, but here the poster's colored. Uh, the 1949 film in, you know, this sort of brash technicolor uh, with June Allison as Joe. And then the 1994 film with uh, Winona Ryder as Joe, Susan Sarandon as Marmy. The most recent adaptation, and there are more to come. I'm sure you've heard about Greta Gerwig coming to town to film Little Women, right? Yeah, she will be here shortly, and they are hiring extras if you're interested, okay? <laughs> I wish I lived here, because I'd love to get on set. Apparently, the, the Fruitlands, I, I spoke last night at the Concord Public, uh, I'm sorry, the Concord Bookstore, and there were a lot of um, a lot of people there from Fruitlands, and they said that they're working actually with Greta Gerwig and the yeah the crew. So that's apparently they're going to be doing some filming out there. Um, the most recent adaptation is the BBC masterpiece theatre production that came out in England last December, Christmas time, and then this spring was on PBS. Um, unfortunately, it came out too late for me to include in my book, so I reviewed it on my blog, sort of comparing it to my readings of the other films, which are all in the book. Um, <clears throat> but I think these films give us a sense. I mean, it really is one of the most adapted of you know American novels into film, and it's not stopping there. I've mentioned uh, the Greta Gerwig film coming up. There's also later this month, like right around the anniversary, it will be released in theaters. A modernized version of Little Women will be in theaters, um, starring Leah Thompson as Marmy. I don't know if you remember her from Back to the Future many years ago. So this, so beyond its worldwide influence and the impact it's had on children's literature. I wanted to talk about also its very, um, very deep importance to women writers and its influence on women's literature. Um, although the novel has been sort of given a quasi-canonical status, particularly by feminist academics, it's, it, and I talk about this in the book, it was really a touchstone for early feminist literary criticism. <coughs> However, scholars have failed to acknowledge how deeply influential uh, this book has been on women's literary traditions in the U.S. and abroad. Um, it has been a foundational text not only in the history of women's literature, but also in individual writers' very conception of themselves as writers. Um, it illuminated a path to a newly imagined future, one in which they could, like Joe Mark, Joe March, spend their hours alone honing their craft, becoming that hallowed mystical thing, an author, 
something that so many girls had never imagined that they could be. There was no one else in their lives telling them, oh, why don't you be a writer someday, right? So this book um, had such a tremendous impact. In short, Little Women is the book, more than any other, to which American women writers particular, their ambitions can be traced, and has exerted more influence on women writers as a group than any other single book. That's a big statement to make, but I decided it was fair to make. Um, there have been lots of other girls' books or books about girls that have been influential. None of them, I think, has the kind of widespread impact of, um, of little women. Jo March, of course, has been the main draw. Right, here's a couple of illustrations of her from the early editions. The one on your left uh, is the from the first edition of the second half of Little Women by Hemet Billings. So they got rid of May Alcott, unfortunately, when they published the second volume. She may not have wanted to, to keep going, but um, this is my favorite, actually, of all the illustrations because I love how it shows, you know, the pages fluttering down. There's sort of, there's a real dynamism here. You can just see her, you know, scratching her pen and working furiously. And the one on the right is from the 1880 edition. <clears throat> this was a deluxe, heavily illustrated edition by Frank Merrill that was the first um, time that Little Women was published together. The two volumes were published together. And the illustrations from this book were reprinted throughout the 20th century. So this is the image of Jo with her glory cloak and her writing cap with the bow on it that a lot of girls grew up with. <clears throat> As female readers discovering their ambitions gravitated toward the book, Jo was the main draw. She's been called by Carolyn Heilbrunn the mother of us all and by Elaine Showalter the dearly cherished sister of us all. So just as Hemingway claimed that all of American literature came from Huck Finn, and I would qualify that, although he didn't, I would say most male literature, we can also say that much of American women's literature has come from little women. Yet women writers were not simply taken with the novel's style and language, although we've seen already that's the style of it, the informality of it, the very real language had a tremendous impact. And we think of Huck Finn as changing American literature in terms of its uh, the dialect that was used. Well, keep in mind that you know Louisa Malcott wrote her book 16 years earlier, and she is injecting American literature with a, with a tremendous amount of slang, which actually got cleaned up for the 1880 edition, the illustrated one I was talking about. And that 1880 edition is the one that was republished throughout the 20th century. So if you read Little Women when you were younger, you might not have read the original Little Women, which is now in print in many editions. Um, it's been kind of recovered by, uh, by scholars. The Norton Critical Edition has it, the Penguin Classic. Um, I just edited a new deluxe edition of Little Women for the anniversary for Penguin Classics. And not only do we restore the original text, but there's an extensive glossary in the back. I had a lot of fun making it because there's so many interesting words that she uses. My favorite was um, Amy's wearing a purple dress with yellow rockets on it. So they couldn't be what we think of as rockets, right? So I'm thinking maybe they're flowers or something. And I looked up in the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, and there was an entry that explained that this was rhyming slang for pockets. Who knew? <coughs> so you might just, you know, you can just read the glossary actually and learn so much about language and the language that Alcott was using. But it wasn't just the language and the topic 
the subject matter of the book that had such an impact on women writers. I think it's important to realize that it gave them the idea to write in the first place. Historically, something very few women have been encouraged to do. More than that, it taught them that their lives mattered, that girls' lives mattered, that it could be the subject of literature, and showed them an alternative to the feminine ideal that places babies far above books. Ultimately, Little Women validated the very idea of a girl developing her own opinions, earning a living, and deciding to become a writer. As Ursula K. Le Guin describes it, Joe March was the original image of women writing, an image that Alcott made accessible to ordinary girls. And she writes, she wrote, unfortunately she passed away recently, Ursula K. Le Guin, it may not seem much, but I don't know where else I or many other girls like me in my generation or my mothers or my daughters were to find this model, this validation. As poet Sonia Sanchez has put it, Joe broke the molds. And I just have a few quotes here <clears throat> from various writers. Gloria Steinem said that from the time I could read until I was 12 or so, I read Little Women every year. It was my ritual and my rescue. Amy, Beth, Meg, and Joe, who was probably why I became a writer, were my family and friends. Patti Smith, who of course didn't become a writer until after she was a famous rock star, but she wrote in her memoir, Just Kids, it was Louisa May Alcott who provided me with a positive view of my female destiny. From that time on, I cherished the idea that one day I could write a book. Maybe my favorite is J.K. Rowling, um, who says that my favorite literary heroine is Joe March. It's hard to overstate what she meant to a small, plain girl called Joe, who had a hot temper and a burning ambition to be a writer. <laughs> of course, J.K. Rowling is Joanna Rowling. It's very telling that still in the 20th century, she was told to publish her book under uh, a sort of gender neutral with the, uh, with the initials there instead of her own name for fear that boys wouldn't read her book. I have a whole chapter. I won't talk about it today, and I won't open the can of worms unless you want to during the Q&A, but <clears throat> I have a whole chapter about the gender segregation of children's literature and how little women has been taken out of schools because they fear boys won't read it, and there's so much concern about boys reading. Um, as a result, Little Women has become a private book for girls. That's how one teacher put it to me. Those are her words, not mine. It's a private book for girls, not suitable for the public classroom. Yeah. So um, then the last quote is Barbara Kingsolver. I personally am Joe March, and if her author, Louisa May Alcott, had a whole new life to live for the sole pursuit of taking me out of it, she could not. So not, I love Joe March, I want to be Joe March, I am Joe March, right? She, I, I heard, I've heard a lot of women tell me this, actually. Um, so deep is their identification with Joe. She's such an important figure. Um, and not just because she's a writer, although that has been a big part of it, um, but I think what it's the themes of this novel, the themes of growing up female, what it means to become a young woman, right? So Alcott was asked to write a book for girls. She wasn't asked to write a book about little women or adolescents, but she chose, she chose that particular time in life that Henry James called the awkward age, those years, and he was particularly referring to girls, the years um, when they're not quite girls anymore, they're not quite women. What's awkward about it? It's awkward because they're becoming sexual beings, right? And this is something that Alcott doesn't mention overtly in the book, 
but it's everywhere in the book, right? So the girls are having to wear gloves now because they're older and they can't go to the dance and touch a boy's hands, right? You have to have gloves on. Um, they're wearing their hair up. They're uh, having to wear long skirts. Now something Joe resents having to do. All of those are markers of the fact that they are no longer innocent girls. They're becoming sexualized women. And it actually, as Alcott was writing the book, <clears throat> um, and this is, I'll just show the next picture, which is of, these are some images from the films. This is about Meg. And the one on the left shows Meg at Vanity Fair from the 1994 film. And that's when she's getting all dolled up. She's getting dressed up by a French maid, wearing a corset, wearing rouge, um, showing her cleavage, wearing high heels. Um, and she thinks it's kind of fun, but she doesn't like the attention she gets later at the dance, right? She realizes that she's become a doll or even a sexual object. She's not happy about it. And so she, she's, what she's doing is trying on a particular female identity to see how she likes it. Is it, you know, simple as wearing a dress, right? But getting, you know, putting on all of the, the, um, accoutrements that belong to that identity to try it on and see what it's like and decides, ah, it's not for me and ends up marrying, uh, the poor man, John Brooke, having a very different life. Um, Amy, of course, is quite happy to take on this role. She embraces it. Whereas Joe resents having to wear long skirts. Amy can't wait to wear them, right? For Amy, I think the, the feminine trappings to her signified a kind of power, a power that she wields throughout the novel. She's enjoying the powers of fascination, I think is the phrase that Alcott's use, that Alcott uses. All of Laurie's college friends in the second part of the book um, you know, are sort of drooling over Amy. And when she goes over to Europe, it's Fred Vaughn, you know, who's kind of, you know, wandering around and following her. And eventually it's Lori who falls for her. And it's sexual attraction. There's no question about it. That be, that's actually more apparent if you look at the manuscript chapters of the book that have survived. Um, a Concord Free Public Library has two chapters of Little Women that were preserved. And on the back of one of them, Alcott wrote, uh, preserved at mother's request. So apparently these were Abigail's favorite chapters. Um, one of them is about Amy in Europe. She's writing uh, Letters Home, our foreign correspondent. And in the original draft, Lori doesn't just have one suitor, Fred Vaughn. She has many suitors. She has a guy she kind of picks up on the boat on the way over who's following her around and wants to marry her. And she's writing home to Marmy saying, I swear I'm not, I'm not flirting with him. I don't like him at all. I don't know why he's following me around. I just can't help it. Um, there are German boys serenading her. And Fred Vaughn is kind of, you know, he just sort of disappears. Well, when she revised the chapter, apparently she felt it would be more proper for her to have one suitor and Fred Vaughn, who's a friend of Lori's, a known quantity, not some guy she picked up on the boat on the way over, right? And so I think what she's doing with Amy is showing us a young woman who's enjoying the power of femininity and sexual attraction. Um, and it gets a little out of control in that manuscript chapter. And she has to sort of tame her down a little bit when she edited it. The impression has always been that Alcott dashed off this novel in a matter of weeks, you know, that the rough draft went to the printer, basically. And that's simply not true if you look at these manuscript chapters, which no one else has done before. No one has compared them to, uh, to the published version. And so I was very surprised to find those changes. And there's some interesting changes in the other chapter as well. 
um, which describe which is the chapter about um, uh, Lori proposing to Joe. Um, that I, I talk about those in the book. So these are, these are sort of the undercurrents of Little Women that I think still very much relate to what the experience is like for our girls today growing up, right? Um, I talk about the, the book by Mary Pfeiffer, Sur uh, Reviving Ophelia, here, uh, which is a book from the 90s, written pre-internet, about how challenging it is for girls to make that transition, because when they're younger, they tend to feel that, you know, the world is their oyster, there are lots of possibilities. I want to be a doctor, or I want to do this, you know, I want to be a teacher, or be a professor, whatever it is. And then when they hit puberty, so 13, 14, um, you know, puberty's coming earlier and earlier now, um, they start uh, restricting their ambitions. They start feeling very self-conscious. They start realizing that they are being judged on their looks, that their bodies are being examined. And um, what girls are going through then is very much what the girls were going through in 1868. And I would say now, with the interventions of the internet, even more so. There's even more obsessive attention to women's bodies that girls are exposed to from a very young age. Um, so Little Women, I think, is an important book because it gives girls a safe space in which to think about some of these issues. Um, you know, in a less complicated way than talking to them about like Kim Kardashian or something like that, right? I mean, who wants to go there? But let's talk, you know, let's talk about what Joe's experiencing and how she, the way she resists the trappings of femininity. And she decides as she grows into womanhood that, well, um, there's some things maybe that I'll accept that maybe might be nice. Like she eventually decides, okay, maybe I do want to get married and have kids. Initially, she was adamant she was going to stay an old maid. Um, but there are other things that she's not going to have. She's not going to be dependent on her husband. She tells him when they get married, I am going to help earn the family's income. And you have to get used to that or this isn't going to work out. She's very forthright about it. Um, that's a line that feminist scholars always seem, so seem to overlook when they complain about Joe getting married. Um, it's how she gets married, I think, that's significant. And, and it's important to remember, too, that Alcott felt pressured to marry her off. So remember how the book was published in two parts? <clears throat> there were intervening months after that first book came out when she's starting to write the second volume, and she's getting all these letters from kids, you know, all these letters from girls wanting to know who the girls marry. And she said Joe should have remained a literary spinster, like herself, right, because Joe is Louisa in many ways. Um, but she felt like she couldn't do that because she had to cater to her um, to her readers and their desires. She didn't want to disappoint them too much, but she did disappoint them quite a bit, didn't she? How many of you have been dis were disappointed that Joe didn't marry Lori? Anybody? Yeah, you can admit it, yeah. <laughs> there are always quite a few in the crowd if I ask that question. I think it's, for girls, it has been very disappointing. Um, but for, for Alcott, she gave her, she said, I won't marry Joe to Lori to please anyone, and I'm going to give her instead a very funny match, she said. She said, I, I expect vials of wrath to be poured upon my head, but so be it. <laughs> um, so she did subvert her reader's expectations in terms of marriage and made, you know, what might seem to us a funny match, but by making that funny match. She also, I think, um, you know, showed her readers that, you know, here is a girl who turns down a very eligible suitor, who's a very good friend, right? It's maybe a little bit hard to understand, but teasing out why she did that is really useful to think about. 
I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that she didn't want to be a wealthy man's wife. She wanted to keep a grain of her own independence, which would be very difficult to do if she was married to a man who had so much money. You know, she'd be put on some sort of pedestal, and she doesn't want to be put there. Amy, on the other hand, perfectly happy to be put on a pedestal. Um, I will say, maybe I've been a little bit hard on Amy here, but I will say that um, I have met many women uh, while I've been working on this book who, you know, they liked Joe, but it was Amy they really wanted to be, which I thought was really interesting. In fact, the, the New Yorker ran a lengthy piece about little women um, a couple weeks ago, and then they had uh, the letters to the editor in the, most, in the current edition of the New Yorker. There's one letter about this essay, and this woman is saying, you know, I understand that Joan Ocello, however you say her name, you know, wanted to be Joe, but I always wanted to be Amy. And she explains that, you know, Amy had ambitions to be an artist too, but she was more glamorous. And not only that, but many people have wanted to be, many women have wanted to be Amy because she's the one who seemed to be the winner in the end. She got it all, right? She got, she got the cute boy next door. Uh, she got the riches that she wanted, the fancy clothes. Um, you know, she gets to help young artists. So maybe she gives up her art, but she still, you know, remains close to the art world. And she seemed to have gotten more of the prizes than Joe did. Joe ended up marrying some stodgy old professor, you know, opening a school for boys. That wasn't a very, you know, that, I could see that that wouldn't be as appealing to young girls. But the point here is that Little Women is a book that shows young women there is not just one way to grow into womanhood. There are at least four paths that we see in the book. In fact, there could be infinite possibilities, right? This is a highly unusual message in literature of that time and well into the 20th century. As, as Le Guin said, where else were we to find this model? Where else were we to find, I would say, this array of models? So many girls could find themselves reflected in the different characters. Um, I've also met many readers who told me that it was Beth that they identified with, um, even aspired to be. Many people seem to be very surprised by this, but I would bet there are some here in the audience who have been drawn to Beth. Um, Margot Jefferson actually talks in her memoir, Negroland, about growing up reading Little Women and her sisters were all reading it. And she says that um, she, she wanted to be like Beth because Beth was the one who was loved and was loving, right? Everybody loved Beth. She wanted to be good like Beth and get that sort of love and affection that Beth had. And she says, though, that as an adult now, she realizes she should have wanted to be Amy. It's kind of interesting. <laughs> I could talk for hours, um, so I'm going to leave it there because maybe, you know, there's a lot more in the book about it if you'd like to delve into that more. Okay, thank you. Thank you.